your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Acts. We find ourselves in chapter 8. But um, I would be remiss if I just kept going. Every once in a while, um, I think there are times people need to be recognized. You guys ever feel like that? There's times where people ought to be recognized. Especially when, uh, I don't know, we have a hero in our midst, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, so I want to take a moment to tell him how proud we are of him and uh, his willingness to serve his country. Destry Weeks is here with us. Destry, why don't you stand up? He just finished basic, and uh, we're honored to have you here. Thank you. That's Brother Marine. What are you going to do, you know? <laughs> I, I had to fight back. The hurrah there for a minute was gurgling up inside of me, but it may come out later. So hold tight. <laughs> Acts chapter 8. As we take a look... We finally finished Acts chapter 7. I know that everybody wanted to have a party because we moved on to the next chapter. But as we did, this is what I want you guys to see. We finished in chapter 7 which, in, in which we see the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen who uh, just does, gives this incredible sermon of, of speaking of the, the heart's resistance to the Holy Spirit. And it leads us to some very specific things. The martyrdom of Stephen leads us to a time of persecution. A time of persecution leads us into a dispersion where people begin to spread out. That dispersion provides opportunities for evangelism. And we see evangelism taking place. And evangelism leads to revival. And so in chapter 8, that's what we see. A revival, uh, particularly in Samaria, through a man named Philip. Now, I don't know if you'll remember him. But way back in Acts chapter 6... There was a problem. The problem in the church in Acts chapter 6 was some widows weren't getting fed. Some of the Hellenistic, which means the Greek-speaking widows, weren't getting their food. So they gathered together a bunch of Hellenistic believers, or Greek-speaking believers, and they asked them to take up that job. The first man listed of the seven men full of the Holy Spirit called to feed the widows was a man named Stephen. And we just saw his martyrdom in chapter 7. The second name on the list is Philip. He becomes known as Philip the Evangelist, and he we meet in Acts chapter 8. What's the purpose? The, 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 the issue that I think God wants us to understand? Today we'll be introduced to a man named Simon who wanted to be great. But when we look at Stephen and Philip and the other seven men full of the Holy Spirit chosen by God... To feed the widows, what we see is men who are willing to serve. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and what does he do? He lifts you up. So we see Stephen, humble, feeding widows, just doing what he can, serving tables, helping out, being willing to serve in whatever capacity. Now maybe in his heart, he had a desire to really be able to go out and meet the Sanhedrin and tell them what's up. But he was willing to serve wherever they had a need. And so what was accomplished as a result? God raised him up. He was faithful in the little things. God gave him more. 
In Philip, we see the same thing. Faithfulness in the little things, not a desire to, to proclaim self or establish himself as some great person. And what do we see Philip doing? The exact same things you saw Stephen doing. Guys, these aren't the apostles. These are just guys they picked who got saved on the day of Pentecost, put their faith in Christ, and decided to live their faith in the real world instead of just going through life doing the motions. They, they made a decision to be committed, to really go for it. And so in Acts chapter 8, we see God do some great things. And as we look at it, and as we, as we read it together here in just a moment, I just want you to have eyes to see that, that these things, these trial, this trial, this persecution that came upon them, these difficult times, it affected Peter, it affected James, it affected all the believers, but God brought blessing through it all. That's what he does. He gives us beauty for ashes, right? The oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's what God does. He says in those times of persecution and hard times and difficult issues in our life, he just calls us to glorify God in the middle of it all. And watch what happens. God will do great things. Let's take a look. Acts chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And devout man carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. And Philip... He went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was a great joy in the city. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city, and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. Well, they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed and was baptized. He continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. But now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had not fallen upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they laid hands upon them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power, that anyone upon whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent. Therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. 
For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things that you have spoken may come upon me. And when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we pray that your word would go forth and accomplish that to which it is sent. We pray that our hearts might be a fertile soil to receive the seed of your word. And God, that you would do a perfect work in us and through us as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the scripture begins by telling us that Saul was consenting at Stephen's death. Now, that doesn't mean that he was just there and he was happy about what happened to Stephen. Consenting at his death means that he was a part of the process. He was a part of the process in the voting, in the casting the vote to have him stoned. He held the coats of the witnesses, the false witnesses, who first began to cast their stones in Stephen's direction. So as we look, Saul we see is very involved. But it also tells us that day that Stephen died, a great persecution arose. And from that persecution, there was a spreading of believers on all throughout Judea and Samaria. So we have Jerusalem. You remember Jesus saying, I want you to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and where else? Uttermost parts of the earth, right? This is part of the commission that Jesus gives in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. So as we look at that, now what we see is that beginning to happen. Now, what I want you to understand and, and where I disagree with some people in, in respect to the scriptures is I don't think that the church was remiss in what they were doing so God spanks them and cast them so they begin to spread out. He brings that persecution. Here's what I believe takes place. The Hellenistic Jews come for uh, the, the, the Passover. They stay for Pentecost. At Pentecost, the power of God is poured out. They, these Jews get saved, the, the Greek-speaking Jews. They swell the ranks of the church. They stay and become a part of the service and directing, and, and they stay there in Jerusalem. Then, when the, the martyrdom of Stephen takes place, I think the, the animosity from Saul in the initial part of the persecution was toward the Greek-speaking Jews. Because they were different. If you take time to look at when people begin to persecute, the persecution is always going to begin with the people who are the most different. What does the Bible tell us right here? It says the apostles did what? Stayed in Jerusalem. How come they weren't getting persecuted? I mean, they've been brought before the Sanhedrin. They've been accused. They've been beaten. They've been threatened. But they were Hebrew-speaking Jews who weren't necessarily out on the fringe as much as the Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking Jews were. So those seven who were initially chosen to feed widows, each of them, I believe, begins to develop a ministry, reaching out, affecting people's lives, preaching and teaching, starts to annoy. Stephen gets in his argument with Saul, which leads to his martyrdom. Persecution starts, and that's who they focus on. Now, focusing on the Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews is going to accomplish something. Each one of those Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews came from somewhere else to Jerusalem for Pentecost and then stayed. So when the persecution starts, what are they going to do? I'm going to go home. I'm just going to go back where I came from. They're not uptight. They're not uh, upset. They go preaching. They leave and everywhere they go, they tell people about what Jesus Christ means to them, what he's working through them, what he's accomplished in their life. And so we see the Hellenistic Jews begin to spread. They begin to go 
to two primary places in the beginning, Judea, which would be like the county area there in that area around Jerusalem, and then into Samaria. Now that's a little different. Samaria is like the place nobody wants to go. And I don't want to hear nothing about Castleford when I start talking about Samaria. John's not here, so I chased him out of last service because he started his comments. Crazy guy. Samaria, <laughs> Samaria is in the area of Shechem. And Samaria exists because the nation of Israel was divided into two in their history. And way back in 721 B.C., a group of the poor uh, uh, Jews that were left behind from Assyrian captivity in the northern area of Israel were stuck in Shechem, and they mixed together with other Canaanites, and they became a mixed race. Now, we've all experienced that in, in a variety of different ways of racism in our own country, haven't we? Well, the exact same thing occurs for the Jew. When the Jew comes back into the land after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews in Samaria come down to help. They want to help build the temple. But the Jews in Samaria had been infiltrated with false religious system, and they had mixed... Canaanite uh, uh, practices with Judaism. So they had these mixed concepts about everything. So the Jews that were building the temple told them no. The Samaritans got angry, went back to Samaria. They built their own temple, developed their own scriptures. Utterly, totally separate. So now if you go to Samaria today, you can see sacrifices still taking place on Mount Gerizim in a temple that is run by the Samaritans. The Jews cut off everything with the Samaritans. The Samaritans cut off everything with the Jews. Until we see Jesus in John chapter 4 say, I got to go to Samaria. There's a woman there that even the Samaritans don't want to have anything to do with. And she is ready to meet God. So Jesus went. And I'm reminded of what Stephen said about what God said to Moses in Acts chapter 7. You remember when God said, I see I have heard, I have come down, and I send you. So he went. Jesus went. He met this woman. He told her everything. And we see the seeds of revival start in Samaria, right? A lot of people begin to believe. We see people who are, are uh, excited about what Jesus is doing. Now Jesus goes away. He's crucified. A few years have passed, the church has grown, it's blossomed, there begins to be this martyrdom of Stephen, spreading from persecution, a dispersion, and the scripture tells us Philip goes to Samaria. Jesus planted the seeds there, Philip is going to come and water. Jesus prayed, pray to the Lord of the harvest that workers would come to bring in the harvest, and we're going to see Philip get to be a part of that harvest there in Samaria. So as we look, the scripture goes on to tell us, at the time that Stephen died, there were two groups of people. One, devout men who took the body of Stephen and buried it. Listen, that phrase, devout men, these are God-fears, these are not believers, this is not part of the church. These are part of the people who are listening to what Stephen was saying, and as he taught, and as he, as he brought the message, they were convicted in their heart and moved with a passion. And when Stephen was killed, these men came and took his body and wept over him. 
Whenever you share the word, you got two kinds of people. People who are going to be convicted in their heart and are going to be moved by compassion to want to find out, to want to surrender, to give their life to the Lord. The other group are going to be convicted in the heart and want to hit you. That's who Saul was. The Bible says Saul made great havoc. That word havoc is the same word of a, of a raging boar in the middle of a vineyard. It, it could make a mess of a vineyard. I, I, when, when we, some friends of ours would go wild boar hunting in California back when we were younger, and they would say that in one evening, one boar could root up acre upon acre upon acre of potatoes out there when the wild boars would come through the different farms. So they could wreak havoc. And here he's saying that's what Paul, or Saul is doing. He's, he's wreaking havoc. He's doing these terrible things. He's arresting men and women. He's having them dragged off and committed to prison. He's persecuting the church. Now when I see this and I, I hear this, 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 this uh, language in the, in the scripture, it, it brought me immediately this morning to, to 1 Peter chapter 4. I want to encourage you, just flip over to 1 Peter chapter 4. Because I think when Peter talks about a time of persecution, I think this is what he's remembering. I think he's remembering how it began when the, when the flames of persecution first came against the church. In 1 Peter chapter 4, here's what he says. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. I, I don't want to alarm anybody. But that language means you will not escape trial. If you're trying to escape trial in hard times, if you want to take a road or a path that's not going to cause you any discomfort, this is not it. This isn't the path. This path, Peter says, don't be surprised about the fiery trial. That will come upon you. It is a fact. As though some strange thing is happening to you. It's not some strange thing. Listen, to incur the smile of heaven is to also incur the frown of hell. You cannot be God's man without being on Satan's radar. And if you do not want to be God's man or woman, and you do not want to be on uh, Satan's radar, then you find yourself in the middle being no good to either. And I'm not even sure in that point that you are fully committed, that you totally understand what it is to be a, a servant of God. Because if we're a servant of God, then we're all that. Or we're not that. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. He wants all the heart, not a piece. He doesn't want to be part of your life, He wants your life. And so when we look at that, we, we want to see that. He says, listen, not some strange thing has happened to you, but... Rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, that's when He returns, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. you understand what he's saying? He says, hey, if you're suffering, if you're going through hard times, praise God, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Jesus said, if you, if you are my disciples, you will suffer persecution. There will come against you. The enemy will not abide with you being able to go around and share your faith with anybody else. And I want to be 
one of God's champions. And I want to be on the devil's radar. And that means he's going to come against me. But listen, you're either in or you're out. Choose this day, Joshua said. Who will you serve? If God, then serve him. If not, then live your life to the fullest. Because that's all there will be. But if you're going to serve the Lord, then serve him with fervor. Serve him with your whole heart. Go all in. Don't just stay on the outskirts and wonder why things don't look like they should. You, we, sometimes we experience people saying, I'm not experiencing the abundant life. That's because I'm on the sidelines trying to experience the game. You cannot experience the game from the sidelines. You can't. There's no way. You have not bled, sweat, and cried in the effort to prepare yourself for the game, and to get in the game, to fight in the game, to accomplish the things that you accomplish. You have not experienced that from the sideline or from the stadium. We can root our teams. We can be excited about our teams. But we cannot experience what they do because they're in. In my relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to be in. I want to be in. And so Peter, when, when he's talking to people who are in, he says, listen, persecution is going to come. Embrace it. Embrace it. Because in that persecution, God's going to do a work in your life. He's going to shine through you. The glory of God is going to be revealed through you in that time of persecution. Whatever it might be, whatever the trial may be, God's going to shine through. If you allow the Lord to... He's going to bring something through it. James also, I think, referring to this time in James chapter 1, writes this. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. James, who was there? Who becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem? He's there. The brother of Jesus. He says, count it all joy. Rejoice when, when the time of trials comes, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Some people will tell you don't pray for patience. Let me be one of the first people to tell you that's dumb. Pray for patience. Take all you can get. Take all whatever trials are required for you to experience or to learn the patience that you need. Why is that important? Because when patience has its perfect work, the Bible says you will be complete, lacking nothing. And I want to be complete. So, I want to be on the devil's radar. And the only way to do that is for me to be in the game, complete, committed, all in. All in. And if I'm all in, persecution is going to come. But praise God, he's going to give us beauty for ashes. You all joy for mourning the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. God does a work through the trials. The trials lead to blessing. These trials led to revival. These trials led to the blessing. One person's life touched by Jesus Christ in John chapter 4 turns into thousands in Acts chapter 8. Do not despise the day of small beginnings, the Bible says. Man, there's great things on the horizon. Well, Philip, he goes, the scripture tells us. It says in verse 4, where everyone went, they were preaching. And then... It says, Philip went to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things that he said. 
People were flocking to him. Why? Because there's this one woman whose life was totally changed by Jesus Christ, who'd just been waiting to see the outpouring of the Spirit in their area. And here comes Philip. And he starts preaching Jesus Christ. And all these people are like, yeah, man, we heard this from this girl. You won't believe. You know, she's got an incredible testament. People just started flocking to him. Flocking to him. Now, how does God confirm his word in those days? Mark chapter 16 tells us. If you look at Mark chapter 16, here's what Mark tells us would happen for those, especially prior to the New Testament. You know, they don't have a Bible to pass each other, right? Paul's not even saved yet, so the New New Testament doesn't have any books in it. Uh, Mark is probably the first gospel written, and, and it's not quite put together yet. So they don't have a Bible to pass around. So as he's teaching, how's God going to confirm what he's doing? Mark chapter 16 says, These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So after the Lord had spoken these things, he was received into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So God brings those accompanying signs to Philip. The the thing that that amazes the people, here he is telling them about Jesus, and and it pricks their heart and they want to believe, and then they see the confirming signs alongside, the sick are healed, the the demon possessed, the demons are cast out. They see the power of God moving and working through Philip, a man full of the Holy Spirit. And so they see these things. The scripture says in verse 7, unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of, oh, what's it say there? The next word is many. I just want to emphasize as we go through this, it does not say all. You may say that is a minor point. I say it's a major point. God doesn't heal everyone. The Bible says when Philip went, many were healed. Many were dispossessed of evil spirits. Many of the lame were made able to walk. But not all. Not all. For some, that struggle that they have is part of what they need and able to make them be the men and women God needs them to be. You may have to live your whole life with a, a disease and God won't bring the healing. What, was it, what is it that God says in those cases? What did he say to Paul? My glory or, or my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Many were healed. But not all. But we see the accompanying signs. And what happens? A revival comes. People are getting saved. They're seeing the power of God moving in amazing ways as God's Spirit is moving out and touching people's lives. And great joy was on the city. That is what happens in revival. Great joy is on the city. Everybody's not healed. Everybody's life isn't fixed. Every problem is not solved. But now they have Jesus Christ in their life. And the joy of the Lord is my strength. Listen, if the joy of the Lord is not your strength, then maybe you need to take a look and see if you're on the sidelines and not in the game. We need to be in it. Committed. All in. Period. 
When we're all in, I think that's when we experience those things. So here, there, we see this spirit is moving, things are happening. But look, there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery. So this guy's in the occult. In the city, he astonished people, claiming that he was someone great. Now here is Simon's number one problem. And, and this is when it's important for us to do a gut check on ourselves. His desire was to be someone great. Everything was too small a thing for him to be involved in unless it was the main thing. I was, he was the man. Everybody talked about him. Everybody said he is the power of God. That, literally, they were saying he's God in the flesh. That's what he's saying in the language. This, is, this guy, Simon, he's God. People worshiped him. People flocked to him. Now Philip comes and he's doing these miracles in people's lives. They meet Jesus Christ and their lives radically change. And nobody wants to see him anymore. Nobody, all of a sudden, nobody's at his show. Nobody's coming. What's going on? What's happening with all the people? We're going to see Simon then go meet Philip. But I think Simon's main problem is this. And it's not a small problem because a lot of us can deal with it. It can, it can sneak in. We can say things like, I, I used to remember when, when I used to be involved in worship back in, in California. Oftentimes, we were in a, a pretty big fellowship. And oftentimes, people with a lot of skill would come up and they'd say, man, we'd like to find out how to get involved in worship. And there, the way that we did things was, if you wanted to get involved in worship, the first place that you stepped into was children's worship. Because it was a heart check. I can't tell you how many people said, no way, man, you know how good I am? I am not playing for the kids. And so we'd say, cool, well, you're not playing for us neither. Your heart is not okay. You want to be great. A lot of people want to be involved up front. A lot of people want to be seen. Not very many people want to be behind the scenes. Not very many people want to just be, enjoy the day of small beginnings like Stephen and Philip and the other five who God used in mighty ways because they were willing to be used in whatever. I'll feed widows. And the next thing you know, God's got them raised up and doing incredible things. But Simon's different. Simon, he's, he's kind of about himself. He's about greatness. He's about what he's seen and what he's experienced. In fact, it says in verse 10, All the people used to say to him, from the least to the greatest, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he astonished them. That word astonished it also means confused. The idea is not that he had incredible power, that he could shoot lightning bolts out of his fingertips or really turn a guy into a frog, but he could blow him away with the tricks he could do. The reason I say they were tricks is because in a moment, he's going to want to buy one. What's that mean? How, why would you buy a trick? Just teach me the magic words, right? Hocus pocus, and pff, it happens. No, he wants to buy the trick. That's what causes the problem between he and Peter. So this guy astounded people, confused them by the things that he did because of the trickery that he had. But look at verse 12. It says, but when they believed, this is all the people. There's a, there's a distinction made in verse 12 and verse 13. In verse 12, it talks about all the people who believed. What did they believe in? The preaching of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptized. And then, in verse 12, it refers to Simon. What's it say about Simon? And he believed, and he was baptized. It gives a distinction between him, because it wasn't the same belief. 
It's not the same faith. The book of James tells us there's three kinds of faith. Only one kind is salvific. Only one kind brings salvation. There's demonic faith. In James, demonic faith goes like this. The demons believe and tremble, but they're not saved. Just believing, intellectual assent that God exists is not faith. The second kind of faith is dead faith. That is faith without works. A faith that is lip service only, but you can't see it in anybody's life. The Bible calls that dead faith. That's not salvific. It does not bring salvation. The scripture says there is dynamic faith. What is the dynamic faith of of James? Dynamic faith is faith that works. Not faith and works, not faith or works, but faith that works. When there's faith, when you trust in Jesus Christ, your life changes. Things are different. Things are different. That's dynamic faith. That's not what the scripture is saying here about Simon. Scripture distincts him. It breaks him off of the group. But it does say that he followed Philip, and what was he amazed at? Was he amazed at the grace of God? Was he amazed at God's forgiveness? Was he amazed? uh, What was he? He was amazed by the miracles. What he? Those are pretty cool tricks. How'd you do that? How'd you make that blind guy see? How'd you make that lame guy walk? He's amazed at the miracles that are taking place. And so, verse fourteen says. The apostles came. They heard. Now this is going to be important. I want you guys to see this. When the apostles who were... Who were now when... Sometimes I just got to slow down. Did that ever happen to you guys? I can trip over my tongue. My wife can still sling it. She can... Get that thing going. Man, sometimes I get talking too fast and I just step right on it. Take a header, you know, happens. So that's what just happened. So we'll back up and uh, slow down a little bit. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the, what's that say? Word, the word, the logos. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The logos, it's a reference to the word of God. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 says that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. He's the Logos. That's going to be important in a minute. They heard that the people received the Logos. They received the Word. They put faith in Him. So the apostles are coming. Why? They're going to confirm that the Spirit now has gone to the Samaritans. In the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the apostles confirmed that the Spirit went to the Jews. In Acts chapter 8, the apostles confirmed that the Spirit went to the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 10, the apostles confirmed that the Spirit went to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 19, the apostles confirm again, further out now, that the Spirit went to the Gentiles. So we're going to see them used in this way all throughout the book of Acts. They heard that they put their faith in Jesus Christ. They heard that they had been baptized but they had not as yet been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now this is when everybody wants to start arguing. So uh, that's why I'm the only guy with a mic. So there can't be any arguing. And I'll just tell you how this works. It's not that difficult. So I'm going to try to just roll through it. Um, I won't roll through it quick, but I want to roll through it so that you understand. They're coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit will come upon the people. 
Whenever we see the work of the Holy Spirit, it is always, always, every single time associated with one of three Greek prepositions. Para, an, or epi. Jesus tells us in John uh, chapter 14, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of truth, whom the the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you. The word with is para, alongside. No man can come to faith except the Holy Spirit draw him. That's what the Bible says. If the Holy Spirit doesn't draw him, he won't get saved. I don't care what you want to do. So the scripture says the Spirit will be with him. And then Jesus, speaking, these are words in red, he says, he dwells with you, and what's the next part? And will be where? In you. He will be in you. That's a future tense, right? It's six chapters when it occurs. Six chapters from now in John chapter 20, Jesus walks up to the disciples. He says to them, receive ye the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them. Now, I have a question for you. In Genesis 1-1, the Bible says, God said, let there be light. What happened? Did light wait 50 days? A couple weeks? When God spoke, it happened. Jesus is God. He said, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathed on them. What happened? They received the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in you. That's the second Greek preposition. He will be with you. He draws you. When you come to faith, he comes into you. But then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's associated with the third Greek phrase. It's the word para. In Acts 1.8, Jesus told the disciples, Wait in Jerusalem until you have been endowed with power, for the Holy Spirit will come, how? Upon you. The word epi. The word epi in the Greek speaks of an empowerment, uh, overflowing, uh, empowering for service. The Holy Spirit was in them, but on that day, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was going to empower them for ministry. And so they were empowered for ministry in Acts chapter 2. Now they are going to Samaria for those who believe, who have received the Holy Spirit is inside of them, but they don't even understand that. They don't have to know the doctrine for it to take place. Are you aware of that? Yeah, you don't have to have all your doctrine figured out in order to be saved. You just have to trust on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, what's the Bible say? And has their doctrine right? No. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, the Holy Spirit is in them. They don't really know anything about the Holy Spirit. They don't know how the Holy Spirit works. How are they going to find out? The apostles come. That's what they do in Acts 8. That's what they do in Acts 10. That's what they do in Acts 19. So they come and they lay hands on them and they pray that they will receive the Holy Spirit for as yet. What's the scripture say? Look at it. It, It'll say it right for us. For as yet he had fallen, what's that word? Upon. Some of you may say on. Doesn't matter. If you look it up in the Greek, it's epi. He had not filled them. He had not empowered them. He had not given them what they need to be able to do what God's calling them to do. So as yet, the Holy Spirit had not come upon them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's speaking of water baptism. They were baptized in water. Now they need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. What does the word baptized mean? Immersed. What does the word epi mean? uh, Upon, overflow. It's the same picture. 
We need to be immersed in the Holy Spirit, not just have Him inside of us. He needs to be flowing out of us. He needs to come out everywhere, eyeballs, ear, mouth, nose, whatever needs to come out so that He can affect the world around us. So we become a vessel of Him to enable Him to affect the world around us. So what happens? They laid hands on Him and they received the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the understanding. We'll see it again in Acts 10. We'll see it again in Acts 19. In our lives, if we're feeling a lack of power, lack of strength, I don't care. This is where people start arguing about semantics and they'll take me to the Scripture and they'll tell me there's one baptism. There's one Spirit. There's one God. So you only need to be baptized once. Absolute. I agree wholeheartedly. I don't care what you call it. Because Paul, when he wrote Ephesians chapter 5, he called it the filling. He said, be ye being filled with what? The Holy Spirit. He said, don't be drunk with wine, but what? Be ye being a constantly need for being refilled, refueled, empowered, the Spirit flowing upon us. So this is what they're doing. This is how they're empowering the people for service. We see this here, but we also see it in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and other places. Now, Simon saw this. It says, Simon saw that through the laying on of hands of the apostles, uh, laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, and he offered them money. He saw something, right? We can make a case for they were anointed with the Holy Spirit, and they prophesied, because that's something that's visual. They could have seen that. They may have spoken tongues. The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't matter. Because the more the Bible tells us, the more we, in our knuckleheaded ways, make rules. And then a church council will get together and say, you can only be saved if you speak in tongues. Because we see people speak in tongues in Acts 10 and Acts 19 and Acts chapter 2. And we assume they spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 8, so you can't be saved unless you speak in tongues. That's not anywhere in the Bible. It's not there. That's why God doesn't tell us every little aspect, because we start making rules about it. Right? Once upon a time, a preacher wore a suit and a tie. And everybody said, man, he is the most holy right reverend. And I want to be holy, right, and reverent, so what am I going to wear? Suit and a tie. And then for a period of time, there's nothing wrong with it. Is there anything wrong with it? No way. I wear it twice a year. (laughs) And it can happen. Kathy pastors me all the time to wear it more often. So it can happen. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. We flip sometimes the other way, and we think there's something wrong with somebody wearing it. There's not. The problem is we start to make rules that that somehow is associated with righteousness or holiness and and that's not the truth. The truth is what's associated with righteousness and holiness is you being fully committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. All in. So Simon wants to buy it. And Peter, the apostle, is then moved by the gift of discernment and he recognizes what the problem is for Simon. Check it out. He says, Peter said to him, your money perished with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. Look what he says. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. See that word matter in your Bibles? Some of you have different translations. might say something else. It doesn't really matter what else it says. I'm going to tell you what it says in the Greek. It says logos. It says you have no part or portion in logos. In the beginning was the logos. The Logos was with God. The Logos was God. He says, you have no part or portion in it. He's not there. He's not saved. He goes on to say, your heart is not right in the sight of God. Simon, there's a problem with you. Maybe it comes back to the desire to be great. He's not saved. But what does Peter tell him? He doesn't say, get away from me, you loser. You're not saved. You're a fake. You're a pretender. Get out. 
He says, repent. Repent and ask for forgiveness. Repent. Change your ways. Change your direction. Change your life. Turn toward the Lord. Allow God to bring His salvation into your life. Pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. He had a problem. He's bitter. What's he bitter over? Philip's a lot more popular than he is now. He's bound by iniquity. He's still in his sin. He's still in his sin. Listen, you and I are not in our sin. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin, that you might become the righteousness of God. When God looks at you, you are finished, complete, sinless by the blood of Jesus Christ. But Peter looks at him and says, you're bound in your iniquity. You're still in your sin. You're not saved. You're not saved, Simon. Repent. And Simon, it says in verse 24, answered and said, pray to the Lord for me. Folks, nobody has to pray to the Lord for you. If you want to repent, you repent on your own. He says, Peter, pray for me so that none of these things happen to me. But he doesn't repent. He doesn't say, I want to change my ways. He doesn't come before the Lord and say, I'm wrong. He doesn't respond to the message. The church tradition tells us Simon never gets saved. He starts a cult. People worship him as God as they used to because of the trickery that he was able to do. In fact, what he does here becomes a term in the church. It's called simony whenever someone buys a a, a church office, an office within the church with money. There were popes in the past and different officials within the church who have purchased their position with money. It's not the calling. It's not the hand of God moving. It's the hand of man. Simon doesn't recognize. He doesn't come to that proper place of repentance. But the disciples, the apostles, they're not, they're not shortchanged. The people are now... Filled with the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit has come upon them. They're affecting their country. They're affecting their their city. They're affecting their neighborhoods. They're affecting their families. As the power of the Holy Spirit is flowing through them and, and toward other people. He's giving them words to say. He's helping them be witnesses. He's, he's, he's doing all those things that Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do when it come upon you. And so they're, they're accomplishing all those things. Revival is happening. As scripture says in verse 25 that the apostles leave. And everywhere they go, they stop and continue to preach in the cities to the Samaritans. That was a hated people group. But Jesus brought down the wall of separation. And now Samaritans and Jews are one in Christ Jesus. It's not going to be very long before we say Samaritans and Jews and Gentiles. Barbarians, Scythians, slave and free, all one in Christ Jesus. Because he is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. And so it begins in Acts chapter 8. The revival spreads. Philip's not done yet, though God's got one other job for him. He's going to show us next week. That God cares not only about the numbers that we see in Samaria, but he cares about the one guy out in the middle of the desert all by himself. But you've got to come back to hear that one. Well, let's just stand with me and let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for an opportunity to just uh, study the word, come before you, Lord Jesus, and ask you to move 
in our behalf, Lord God. We pray that you would help us to see. Give us eyes, Lord God. Help us to recognize the the power of God moving. Not that we want to be exalted. Not that we want to be great. Father, I pray that we would choose, decide that we want to experience everything that God has for us. We want the, the power of the Spirit moving through us. We want to be all in. We want to be an effective witness wherever we go. And that that ability to be an effective witness does not just hinge on the, on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon and does all the work. God expects us to know the Word. To spend time in the Word. For the Word is Jesus Christ. He is the Word. And Lord, we need to know Your Word. We need to know Jesus. The height, the breadth, the width, the depth of the love of Christ. God, we need to experience that, but we also need the power of the Holy Spirit moving through us. We need to stop fighting with one another about it and just start being who you've asked us to be. Real witnesses, all in. People who actually live what they believe. Father, I pray that your Spirit would move in and through us in a mighty way. And whatever things make us afraid, God, whatever things come up against us, whatever fiery trial, Lord, I pray, Lord Jesus, help us know. No matter what, you are the great I am. You are above and over it all. Father, you are almighty, all-powerful, and you are able. Lord, we just pray as we just seek your face this morning that you might be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.